Going once, going twice. Who would like to read? Open bid here. Yeah, okay. Excited? Oh, I guess. Somebody over here. Oh, Allison and Patty. I just happen to have two left. One of God's greatest gifts to man, a gift that almost daily shouts His glory and beauty, is His creation of clouds. Something that reinforces the majesty and grandeur of our God is beholding either the early morning or fading daylight appearance of clouds painted in the golds and pinks and purples of dawn or sunset. Or the overwhelming mountains of dark and <coughs> ominous thunderclouds that speak so eloquently of His might. Here in these moments is the Lord God speaking to us through the rather mundane element of common water vapor. Forgot to hand these out. Get a bonus today. <coughs> Should be enough for everyone. Lest we forget, however, the operative element in these heavenly displays that we enjoy, that which is responsible for their beauty, is not the vapor itself, but the sun. And very often the condition of the atmosphere between our vision and the clouds themselves. At this moment in the creation narrative, the element of light has been created in verse 3, but not the star created to carry that light to earth. The sun will be... Yes, dear, you were here for that. <laughs> Don't look at me like that. <laughs> you... <laughs> the sun will be created in verses 16 to 18. Thus, as we examine God's creative acts, well, maybe it was last week. Was it last week? I don't think it was last week. You weren't here last week. As we examine God's creative acts during the second day, we must keep in mind that He will have not yet created the colorful symphony we today enjoy as we gaze toward the western or eastern horizon. Now let's read our passage, chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning a second day. So let's dig right into chap verse 6. Perhaps there's no other passage in Scripture that cries out so for clear definition of its words than verses 6 to 7. 
of Genesis 1. Especially in some of the older versions, verse 6 in the King James Version reads, And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. I don't know about you, but whenever I read the word firmament, I imagine, not surprisingly, something firm. Solid, like like a rock escarpment. And whenever I read, divide the waters from the waters, I imagine it speaks of something like what happens in verse 9. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. When I read the word waters, I think of oceans and lakes and ponds and streams. Verse 9 says, Let dry land suddenly appear to separate the water in one sea from the water in another sea. But of course, neither of these describe what is happening in verses 6 to 7. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Here's a classic example of how someone in the 1600s reading the word firmament in their King James Bible would have an absolutely correct image in their mind, while many of us today do not. Most of our common versions have settled on the word expanse, while the newer NIV, bless its heart, (laughs) I'm sorry Renee isn't here, reverted to simply another somewhat archaic reference, vault. Now, why the updated NIV would use vault, I have no idea. We must remind ourselves of the current condition of the created earth, which at this point in the narrative is completely covered with surging water and completely dark. Added to this is the Spirit of God taking part in the creative process. Let's go back and read verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. And the earth was formless and void, and the darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Does your... NASB... Is there a the before the first darkness, and the earth was formless and void, and... Ah, Okay, all right. Just keeping you honest. So we have an infantile earth covered with water and completely dark, yet the Spirit is at work in that. In two words, the entire earth is wet and dark. But now in verse 6, something new is about to happen. And although we cannot say for certain, for Scripture does not state it beyond oblique references, such as in Psalm 33 and Exodus 31, we can make the assumption that the Holy Spirit will be active in the actions of verse 6. I made that case in an earlier session. The Hebrew rakiah was historically translated firmament or vault. The root of the word means to hammer and spread out. Like you would hammer a sheet of bronze or something. Hammer it and spread it out. I'm reminded of the... What, what's that sh- um, show we like? Showing how to make things. 
Modern Marvels. There was an episode in Modern Marvels where they started, they just start with, looks like a metal hockey puck. And they put that in a press, and it just goes whoop up into a seamless bottle that you might buy water in or soda or beer or whatever. Just a seamless bottle from, and of course, very the metal is very thin. It's pressed and spread out and thin. Started out as a hockey puck. That's kind of what is behind this word translated firmament or expanse. We get the word firmament from the translation of the Vulgate, which is the Latin Bible, the first Latin translation, firmamentum, which involves the idea of something firmly put in place. I wasn't so wrong to start with. It is does mean firm. It's, But it's not hard like rock. It's just there, firmly in place. In antiquity, this firmament was thought to be a literal solid dome or vault. I think that it's some South American, or maybe it's North American Indian, the idea of it was a turtle's back. I forget what culture that was. Anyway, I digress. And when one thinks about it, the colorful opinions of many in history for what we would simply call the sky, that is the immediate atmosphere overhead, the surface of the earth, where the birds fly, is a rather remarkable invention of our God. Leupold writes, The rakia is the vault or dome of the heavens or that immense gaseous ocean called the atmosphere, by which the earth is encircled. That so widely differing definitions as dome and gaseous ocean can be given in one breath is due to the fact that whole set of physical laws is involved which makes the lower heavens possible. An airspace encircling the earth, evaporation of waters, rising of gaseous vapors, not to mention descending water. We might imagine that up till this moment in the creation, the earth waters on the surface and the cloud waters, vapors, all called waters. Water you could take a bath in and water that would be like a, a fog. The idea is that at this point in time in the creation, it's all contiguous. It's all surrounding, it's all part of the earth's surface. The vapors are right on top of the water. Without any intervening clear space between them. Remember, step by step, the Godhead is systematically preparing the surface of the earth for its inhabitants. With the surface of the earth, as we suppose, shrouded by continuous impenetrable fog, it would be unsuitable for human habitation. And the verse continues, And let it separate the waters from the waters. Similar to what was done with light and darkness in verse 4. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Put distance between them. 
They, they could not cohabitate the same space. The two waters are now separated. This time, however, they're separated by something, an expanse, a firmament, a vault. We know from practical experience that this expanse is not a rigid, impenetrable dome over the surface of the earth. Clouds can ascend and descend through it. Rain and hail and snow can descend through it. And rockets can ascend and descend through it. probably better than dome. Yeah, canopy, a canopy. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> no, I thought you were, you know, you were holding Okay, I I'm just reading at my level. She's shrinking before our very eyes. Flat Earth? Where did that come from? <laughs> if you're going to challenge me, at least challenge with something sensible. This is. It is. Okay. Well, since I don't subscribe to that, I'm ignorant of it. <clears throat> I thought you were getting my attention. That's what I thought. Yeah, just go sit in the corner. Go stare in the... Sit in the corner. <laughs> there is a distinct layer of atmosphere between Earth's surface and space. I saw something just just this last week. You look out and, you know, as you go up a little higher, then you can see. It's like the way the the deer prune our orchard for us. All the apple trees are just all pruned up at the same level. Everything's the same level underneath. We didn't do that. The deer did that. And that's the way the clouds are. You can see the clouds on certain days. It's as if there's a, there is something rigid that keeps them from going any lower. Well, that's, that's the firmament. That's the expanse. And if you're in the airplane, you can get above it. Yeah, get above it. Yeah. So we can fly through it. Go ahead, try it. So it's a distinct layer of atmosphere between Earth's surface and space. And during the creation, this meant a lifting of the vaporous clouds from the waters on the surface. Now verses 7 to 8. So God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. Now, note carefully what's being said here. Since I sometimes make this mistake myself, it's possible others do as well. The water we see overhead in the form of clouds does not dwell in the expanse or firmament. The division being created here, they dwell above the expanse. That was the whole point. To lift the clouds, the moisture, up off the surface of the earth and create a space between there. 
So they are not in it. They're above it. Verse 7 expands on this, adding more specificity from the initial statement of verse 6. Verse 7 essentially reiterates the work in 6, but does so emphasizing that God accomplished what He set out to do. In verse 6, He said. In verse 7, He made. Closing the verse with, and it was so. That is, it happened. His audible command accomplished its purpose. Some commentators like to differentiate between... I always get the impression that some commentators, some scholars, just are just looking for trouble. They're, they're looking for a reason to be contrary. And some of them try to differentiate between the verse 6, God said, and verse 7, God made. Oh, there's two events here. He did two things. Taking the position that the first states a verbal creating, while the second states a mechanical creating. But that distinction isn't necessary. The two together simply mean that God made something by speaking it into existence. Now later there will be other things he creates that are. Says he puts his hands down there and does it. Yeah, this isn't one of those. We can rely upon Charles Haddon Spurgeon to make a more devotional application to the text. Here's what he writes. Note those four words, and it was so. Whatever God ordains always comes. You will find that it is true of all His promises that whatever He has said shall be fulfilled to you. And you shall one day say of it all, and it was so. It is equally certain concerning all His threatenings that what He has spoken shall certainly be fulfilled, and the ungodly will have to say, and it was so. These words are often repeated in this chapter. They convey to us the great lesson that the Word of God is sure to be followed by the deed of God. He speaks, and it is done. Now as to what has been accomplished during the second day of creation. Let's check in for once with John Salehammer. For once I at least partially agree with him. Salehammer writes, We must be careful neither to let our own view of the structure of the universe, nor what we might think to have been the view of ancient men, control our understanding of the biblical author's description of the expanse. We must seek what clues there are from the biblical text itself. One such clue is the purpose that the author assigns to the expanse in verse 6. It is to separate water from water. The expanse holds water above the land. That much is certain. Okay, we got that. We must be cautious, however, with something else Salehammer says. In referencing verse 8 specifically, and God called the expanse heaven or sky or whatever your translation has it, the Hebrew is Shemaim. And Salehammer states that, quote, here the term refers not only to the place where God put the sun, moon, and stars, verse 14, but also to that place where the birds fly. 
verse 20. No, that's not right, Mr. Sailhammer. Used in verse 8 is a word that in Hebrew usage can be used to refer to either the sky or space, even God's dwelling place. Shemaim. But here in verse 8, it refers to the sky, as in verse 20, a place where the birds fly above the earth. There is no water in space. There are no birds in space. But there is water in the clouds and the atmosphere immediately above the earth. So we can agree that what is referenced in this passage is what we call the sky, the blue sky. Now, about these three heavens, I've referred to them several times in the past. I thought maybe it was time now to get into the details of it. So you might want to look at the back of the uh, handout. The three heavens. It can be confusing that heaven can refer, the word heaven or heavens in the plural can refer to one of three different things. So let's take a few minutes to see what God's Word says about this. Let's begin with the first or lowest heaven, that is earth's sky. This current passage in Genesis 1 describes this first heaven, referring to it as an expanse. Elihu, the companion of Job, in chapter 35, uses the same Hebrew word when he says, in Job 35.5, Look at the heavens and see, and perceive the clouds. They are higher than you. So there he's using heavens to refer to the sky. The Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Shemaim is Uranos. What does that remind you of? Uranos. And it's used in Matthew's Gospel to denote the place where the birds fly. In all our common versions, translated air. So Uranos is equivalent to the Hebrew Shemaim, and it can be used to refer to all three Heavens. Turn please to Matthew 6. Matthew chapter 6. Verse 26. Now that word air translates uranos, same word. Could be, look at the birds of the heaven. So this is the first or lowest heaven, the one closest to the earth. Not the first heaven created, because God's dwelling place was not created, just is. Or if it was created, it was created way long time ago, even before I was born. The second heaven, space, 
Next heaven is what we would call space. Everything above the earth's upper atmosphere, the expanse of Genesis 1.8, is the second heaven. Since we're in Matthew, look at Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verse 18, in which Jesus probably refers to the heavens or space. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Well, I'm... It's not real clear, but I'm since he's referring to an eschatological moment where the earth and heavens are wiped out, I'm pretty sure he's speaking of space. Now, Isaiah 45, please. Turn to Isaiah 45. which has a clearer reference to space. Isaiah 45, verse 12. Well, that seems to be pretty clear. That's Heavens there refers to space. I believe Acts 2, verse 19, which is part of Peter's sermon, also refers to space. I take slight issue with the NASB and LSB translation of Uranus here as sky, since it's clearly referring to celestial objects. Acts 2.19 says, And I will put wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Well, perhaps the rationale of the certain translators is that this phenomena will will be seen be seen from earth in the sky, and maybe that's why they said sky, but these are eschatological phenomena these are eschatological events, and they'll happen in space. It'll be the moon, the sun everything but in any case, that's another use of the same word, Uranus. Now, the third or highest heaven, God's dwelling place. And of course, on your handout, there's many more references. I'm only, yes? What do you make of Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Are those two different words? I would say it is, but kind of interpretary, yeah. I think it is. And there's, there are some references, I think, I, I, I forget which one it is. Well, no, I'm going to read it in a moment. Yeah, never mind. Uh, stop that. <laughs> you knocked me off place. Just kidding. Something about that row there. You guys better watch out there on the end. I'm... I'm nailing everybody in that in that row. Ancient Hebrews referred to the highest heaven also as the heaven of heavens. The apostle Paul referred to it as the third heaven 
and paradise in 2 Corinthians 12:2-4. Moses tells Israel that this is where Yahweh lives. Look at Deuteronomy 26. Get in your exercise today. Deuteronomy 26. Verse 15. Now there, he, he clarifies. Look down from your holy habitation. Oh, what am I talking about? I'm talking about heaven. Same word. Shemaim. Jesus said that this is where the angels live, along with the Son and the Father. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Mark thirteen thirty one to thirty two, and there it's the Greek uranos for heaven. Finally, let's read a passage of praise in the Psalms. Psalm one forty eight. This is good. That includes at least two, perhaps, and I think I believe that it does include all three heavens. Psalm 148, verses 1 to 5. Praise Yah. Praise Yahweh from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His hosts. Praise Him sun and moon. Praise Him all stars of light. Praise Him heavens of heavens. And the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for He commanded and they were created. Now, I think that includes all three. Don't you think? Verse 4, And the waters that are above the heavens, well, the waters that are above the heavens are the first heaven, the expanse. The clouds above the expanse. Then He speaks of space, sun and moon, stars of light. And then, the third heaven, praise Yahweh from the heavens, praise Him in the heights, His angels, His hosts. I think all th three heavens are in that passage. What's that mean? Prove me wrong. <clears throat> See, I get around. I get out. So, although it doesn't use the word Shemayim for all three, I think that passage does indeed include all three heavens. Now, back to our passage in Genesis. This work of the second day. Will have worldwide ramifications for climate and ecology. Henry Morris points out that had the waters not been separated, this is interesting. Pay attention. Wake up, you guys in the back row. Wake up. <coughs> he says, Henry Morris says, if the waters, if the expanse had not been created, first, the contiguous waters would serve as a global greenhouse, maintaining an essentially uniformly pleasant temperature all over the world. 
Without great temperature variations, there would be no significant winds, and the water rain cycle could not form. There would be no rain as we know it today. No clouds? Huh? Oh, no, no, no. Are you saying, are you kidding me? <laughs> no, 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 no. No, no, no. Go, go live in California. Go live in San Diego. Third, there would be, no, there would be lush, tropical-like vegetation all over the world fed not by rain, but by a rich evaporation and condensation cycle resulting in heavy dew or ground fog. And fourth, the vapor blanket would filter out ultraviolet radiation, cosmic rays, and other destructive energies bombarding the planet. These are known to be the cause of mutations which decrease human longevity. Human and animal lifespans would be greatly increased. So these represent a few of the changes had God not created the first heaven. Yes, yes. I I would I wouldn't want to live there. Wasn't there somewhere it said in the Bible there wasn't any rain after We'll get there. And there's two schools of thought on that. Some it can be translated uh mist because there's no rain, mist, or it can be translated streams like like streams coming up from underneath the ground. We'll get there. Probably in about six months. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. God naming something is no small thing. As we'll see as the creative narrative proceeds, naming things is important with God. It means something to Him. To Him and thus should do to us as well. We'll either name he'll, he will either name things himself or see to it that they are named by others. He's already named day and night, verse five. The expanse he has named heaven, verse eight. In verse ten, he will name the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters, seas. And in two nineteen, Yahweh God will present to the first man. Quote, every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, end quote. This time for the man to name. So for some reason it must be important to God to that everybody's named properly. I, I don't mean to make more of this than there is, but at the least we know from Scripture that someone's, and on, on occasion something's name is more than just a handy label for reference. It, it means something. It represents that person. Represents, especially with people, who they actually are. They're enveloping their character, their potential. Spurgeon writes, It is a good thing to have the right names for things. It is a good thing also to know the names of truths and the names of other things that are right. God is very particular in the Scripture about giving people their right names. The Holy Spirit says, quote, Judas not Iscariot, end quote, so that there should be no mistake about the person intended. Let us also always call persons and things by their right names. And God called the expanse 
heaven. The meteorologist knows that there's a specific natural explanation for every drop of rain and every flake of snow that falls from the sky. The naturalist can expound at length about the climatic and seasonal influence upon deciduous trees that cause them to drop their leaves every year. But the poet knows that above science is heaven and the hand of God. The believer knows that even before he created man, God created and thus controls science. Science may have its rules, but God created the rules. Clouds may form according to natural laws, but God created those laws. So, maybe it's a good thing that the closest of the three heavens, the one so close we can almost touch it. Actually, we can, can't we? We can touch it. He he created the first heaven to be between the ground and the clouds. Just touched it. As short as I am, I just touched it. We can feel its effects. And it's been named by God, heaven. He could have called it something else. For by its name it associates it with God. It may not be where He dwells, the third heaven, and it is by nature more of earth than space, second heaven, but it is above and over us, and thus reminds us of the one who made it and named it. The God who is above and over all. Got a couple of minutes. Any profound thoughts? Oh, I'm sorry, that doesn't include you. Anyone else? I'm sorry. Just kidding. It is a wonder that, you know, Genesis zooms in on just this planet. And as we think of all of the other planets that live inside of this solar system, you know, we, we understand certain attributes about those planets and their fittingness or unfittingness for, for life and things of that nature. And it's interesting as we zero in on this planet, we learn about the firmament, this, this expanse the Lord has created, that it's uniquely created in such a way for us. And if you think of the other planets, or they don't they don't have the same attributes, they don't have the same care and and um, you know consideration, you know. And and what does that say to you? Well, His grace, just as, just as Israel is His chosen people, and just as Christians are brothers, brothers and sisters to Christ in His family, fellow heirs, he chose out this earth. You know, right? Second verse of the Bible. Shum, earth. Doesn't say Mars, Jupiter. It's earth. And everything that follows is about earth. Now, I suppose, theoretically, it's possible. I don't know. I don't think it's possible, but who knows? 
that there's another world somewhere where there's another Bible, another Savior that God created for another people, another earth. But it'd have to be the whole package, wouldn't it? They'd have to have their own Bible, their own Gospel, their own Savior, maybe the same Savior. But, I mean... I don't get out much, so I think about these things. And and it's even scholars will kind of hedge their bets on that. You know, I mean, it's you you can't really find a chapter and verse that says no, it's impossible. But clearly in our Bible, in our world, in this earth, this earth is special. He cares about it. And maybe they're maybe they're right. But it's hard to prove it one way or the other. If you combine the last things with the first things, one of the things that becomes clear is that he created, I know in this world it doesn't make sense, but it's, you, you get this from Scripture, and this might speak against those who say, there might be something out there that it says God created the the heavens for us, for the earth. Right. So that that sets the stage for this earth being special and this creation being unique. Yeah, it could be unique, but not the only one. Who knows? But that's something far afield of this. We, we will not be discussing that further. I'm sorry I brought it up. No! He brought it up. That guy over there. The guy with the funny hair. Yeah. Father God, Your Word is so rich. Please forgive us for letting our minds roam and imagine But, on the other hand, that's how you made us. We can have our thoughts. But none of this changes that you are God. You are our Lord. Jesus Christ alone saves us. It is His Gospel. And your Spirit... Your Holy Spirit is the one who indwells us. So thank you for your word and thank you for this time gathered around it. In Jesus' name, amen.